CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Wednesday Red Day on The Hash. Everyone listening to us on the Coindesk Podcast Network, you don't get to enjoy the vibrant that the people who are watching us on Coindesk TV get to see today. I'm Jensen Asio. On today's show, we have Wendy O, Zach Seward, and Adam B. Levine, who apparently doesn't know what red is. Terracotta is red. It's a thing. <laughs> that is brown. Yeah, that you're like wearing a brown say... shirt, sir. <laughs> I think Zach is wearing orange. This, this is purple. I don't know what you guys are talking about. This is see now everybody's <laughs> just colorblind. This is purple, right? <laughs> this is red. This is red. <laughs> All right. I'll take the first story of the day. Let's get to it. All right. The great deleveraging has another victim, and that victim is Genesis CEO Michael Morrow, who is stepping down as. Genesis, the crypto lender, cuts 20% of its workforce facing hard times. Now, this stems from financial difficulties relating to extending loans to three arrows capital. There was something like a $1.2 billion hole in the books that was later assumed by Genesis' parent company, Digital Currency Group. Now, this disclosure, Digital Currency Group also owns Coindesk. So Coindesk and Genesis are sister companies, but that doesn't stop us from talking about the news. I'm going to toss this over to Adam for his initial thoughts on Genesis having to cut back pretty significantly and seeing its CEO go elsewhere as a result of this pretty staggering loss. I mean, I think that what we're seeing here is the kind of the other shoe that's starting to drop in some of these uh, some of these companies. You know, we've already seen it from companies like Voyager and companies like Celsius. Well, mostly companies like Voyager, uh, not so much Celsius yet. Uh, you know, I mean, ultimately. These are big bets that these companies made. If they had paid off, they would have been geniuses. They did not pay off. Instead, they blew up in their faces. And so this is just naturally what happens. Honestly, a $1.2 billion loss and all you're doing is leaving the company. I feel pretty good about that. That seems like a, like a less worse uh, you know, outcome than certainly you could see from something like this. What do you think, Wendy? I'm very sad. The entire market and all the layoffs, all of the crypto contagion has just made me really, really sad. Another thing that's kind of problematic to me, like I understand that there's these big losses and these big holes, but at least I think that we should kind of keep people employed. Like bear markets are for building. They're for building. That's how I was able to build my channel successfully. I know so many other people that have built great things, but if we keep letting talented people go, how are you going to be able to build and grow 
when the next bull market hits. Either way, I'm just very sad. Jen? You know, when I read this story, I thought about the Do Kwan interview we spoke about this week. You know, so much of this happened because of the Terra Luna contagion. And just thinking about that interview and thinking about him saying, well, I didn't know this was going to happen and kind of shrugging it off and not really acknowledging the human element on the other side of this. You know, 52 people lost their jobs at just Genesis. This is 20% of the company. It makes me sad, Wendy, you know, and I think we can say that, you know, a lot of these companies didn't properly prepare for a bear market, but I think they also didn't properly prepare. They also maybe didn't think that we could have contagion to this magnitude kicked off by such an event that, you know, no one expected. And so it is sad. But Adam, I'll pass it back to you. I think I saw your hand go back up. Yeah. So I think that there's a couple of different things here. One, you can talk about individual impacts and you can talk about what happens to individual human beings. And that is very sad in large circumstances. Honestly, though, I'm pretty happy to see the failures that we're seeing. I hope we see more of them. I don't hope that because I like failures. I hope that because the reality of it is, is that that's the way that we make progress, is that companies come along and some overextend and some underextend and the ones that overextend and the ones that underextend, right? You judge the environment wrong. And then the market says, okay, no, you were totally wrong about that. Go do something else that's more valuable, right? So like the the process by which this stuff clears and kind of the all the garbage that's in the space clears, that happens at a systemic level. And it's more like you can think about it like water flowing, right? Again, like it's not like this stuff is finite. It, the opportunity will always be there. It's just a question of what's the vehicle that we're using to chase that at any given time. And if these things aren't allowed to fail, then we wind up having companies that aren't doing a good job, but are sucking up resources, sucking up talent, and really doing nothing useful with it. So again, it's better that we try a lot of stuff. Some of it fails. We learn from that and we go on. Wendy, back to you. I definitely agree with that. It's just very hard for me because so many retail investors were hurt and so many people totally. had their funds left on exchanges, myself included. Me, I'm fine though. It doesn't matter. But I, one of the things I do want to say is this just goes to prove to the SEC and to any of these ivory towery third-party bodies that just because you're an accredited investor or an institutional investor doesn't mean that you're more well able to invest in the current market because we're seeing this now with all these institutional investors and these accredited investors taking these massive losses, just like retail. Yeah. I mean, again, just a big, big black eye for crypto lending, right? We saw it on the retail side with Celsius and Voyager. Here, this is a pretty big one for the institutional side of the crypto lending market to see these cuts happen. Certainly significant. Last and, word to Adam. I mean, yeah. Just before we move on, like I think that the, the other takeaway is how well decentralized lending performed, how well the over-collateralized, less leveraged platforms performed to the extent you were decentralized, but to the extent that except in some very uh, you know, small circumstances, this didn't really affect you in the same way. So again, I think that what we learned is that those centralized risk-taking attributes that come with plays like, like these big lenders that are out there, they just have risk because they're willing to trust people. They're willing to say, hey, you guys look like you have a lot of money, so okay, let's do this, as opposed to MakerDAO, where they're like, okay, put up 150% collateral for the money you want to borrow from us, and hey, we're good, you know, so long as you maintain that ratio. Anyways, we have to move on, but it's a, it's a fascinating story. Okay. Actually, the next story is me. And uh, in a story that just broke this morning, uh, Coindesk's Andreas Angler uh, says the nation of Colombia is talking about launching a central bank digital currency or CBDC with the specific aim of combating tax evasion. The nation, which had the distinction of being the top producer of the key component of cocaine for many years, is somewhat notorious for corruption and cartel-led organized crime. All of that adds up to not much respect for the rule of law and thus low compliance when it comes to paying your taxes. 
Now, there's a little bit of an obvious angle to this story, which I'm happy to talk about, uh, which is that eliminating cash creates uh, a better net for the government to sort of scoop up money in and be aware of what's going on. But that also, especially in areas where you have a lot of corruption, a lot of crime, can create problems. But the reason why I was attracted to this story, honestly, was because of a hypothetical scenario that popped into my head while I was reading this, which is like, what if we had a government that was actually trusted, actually effective, and that didn't appear to use any power that it was given, you know, in ways that were detrimental to the citizens? In this type of situation, I actually think there is an argument for a central bank digital currency to be used for tax compliance, not just because it would give them oversight, but because you could automate it in a way that makes compliance so painful today. So, Zach, I'll go to you first on this one. We can talk about this from kind of either angle, but what's your take on it? Yeah, CBDCs, they continue to be this uh, attractive, maybe for the wrong reasons, financial tool for governments the world over, right? Tax compliance, yeah, do your taxes, be compliant with taxes, but also sort of, again, have trust in your citizenry to be able to do that by implementing sort of a technical solution that introduces an additional degree of financial surveillance into these national economies definitely seems weird, right? We've heard China with their experiments around CBDC say, hey, you know, we can airdrop money. If you don't spend it by a certain amount of time, that goes away, right? It gives us a little bit of uh, power, a little bit of uh, ability to shape the economy as we see fit, maybe for the benefit of the citizenry, but also it introduces a sort of dystopian overtones of government controlled cash to an extent that hadn't previously been imagined, right? That's what these ledgers produce this the ability to control cash flows in a way that hadn't previously been possible. And we've seen a lot of noise around, especially out of the EU, right, around privacy concerns around CBDCs as these various central banks explore this stuff. And we're going to see different governments implement different visions of what a CBDC can be as it relates to how private it is, how not private it is, how controllable it is, how not controllable it is by those who are pulling the economic levers at various central banks. I'll toss it to Jen, though, for her thoughts. Yeah, Zach, I went in the same direction as you when I imagined the world that this could potentially enable. So I just think it's really worrying, right? We start with tax evasion and then what's next? Preventing crime and money laundering. We've heard that kind of all across the world. And so while it may be useful in Colombia, I think it could prove out a use case that other countries might think, hmm, we could use this for a different use case. And it might set a dangerous precedent. I know, Adam, you brought up the corruption and cartels in Colombia. Imagine a world where maybe a family member of yours is a high-ranking cartel member and you all of a sudden can't spend the money that's in your bank account. I know that sounds crazy, but it only sounds crazy until it happens. And so I just think it's a really dangerous and worrying precedent to set. I was reading an article published by Reuters and, and it, it did say that tax evasion cost the country $17.6 billion. So I understand that this is something that they would like to address. In that same article, they said the incoming president-elect said that evasion would be punished with prison sentences. I also wonder, if we have CBDCs, we can track tax evasion. Now it's become all of a sudden punishable by prison sentences. Can the prison system there handle this? It just sounds like a disaster. Zach, passing it off to you. My tepid take is like, you know, crime and money laundering is bad, but it's sort of like the unsavory stuff that is otherwise legal or the stuff that is financed by political parties that the ruling party does not like. Stuff like that, that where these censorship concerns become quite scary, right? Become really a tool for authoritarianism in whether it's Colombia, China, hey, the US even, right? The ability to stifle things that aren't illegal, but are unsavory and disliked 
by those who are in power is something that I think is potentially scary for what CBDCs can ultimately end up accomplishing. But that was a tepid take. So I'm going to toss it to Wendy for that, for the spicy stuff. I want to play devil's advocate here. And I know this is a very unpopular take, but a lot of the people that are participating in these illicit activities and contributing and growing and facilitating all of the bad stuff, that's actually a viable economy for them. That's how they make money. So when you take that ability for them to make money, I'm not saying I support it in any way, shape or form. I'm just saying, I don't know how it's going to go over with that economy. And on top of it, there's a lot of political leaders that are taking kickbacks. Thing that does scare me about a CBDC, I would love the fact to where all of my spending can be tracked and I don't have to hire a CPA to do my taxes and pay tens of thousands of dollars to do it because it's an absolute ridiculous process, especially in the United States. But then at the same time, if I allow that to happen, I lose my privacy. And in addition, it's again, it's going to be very interesting to see how these government entities are going to deal with their spending not being transparent anymore because you cannot track what the, what the citizens are doing and not track what the government officials are doing. When streaming tax payments, let's get it going, IRS. We need to get you on a blockchain. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Don't do that. Coindesk has a new event. It's called Ideas, the Investing in Digital Assets and Enterprises Summit. It facilitates capital flow and market growth by connecting the digital economy with traditional finance. Join us for a 360 investment experience where you can source, invest, and secure the next big deal in digital assets, all in one place. Use code HASH20 for 20% off a general pass. Register today at coinest.com forward slash ideas. We got a good story that we got to talk about because it revolves around privacy. So apparently, Kraken CEO Jesse Powell slams tornado cash sanctions. And I'm so glad that he did because I don't like them. I don't like the sanctions. I think they're ridiculous. And I think it is infringing on our rights. But he basically called government ban on tornado cash unconstitutional. Jesse, I agree with you 100%. He also said people have a right to financial privacy and that he doesn't believe the sanctions will survive court. He also said that the ban sounds like a knee-jerk response to the tarot ecosystem collapse back in May. And you know what? I agree with him. I want to toss this over to Adam. Yeah, uh, Jesse represents kind of one of the original sort of uh, crypto, specifically Bitcoin OGs, not really so much crypto, although that's kind of what it's become. And he's, I think, better than almost anybody else in the space, sort of kept the ethos of the early sort of beliefs around this stuff, the reasons why we're here, the philosophy behind why it matters, and has really kind of stuck to his guns on that. So it's not at all surprising to see this take coming from him. The challenge around these issues that, you know, regulators deal with and companies and governments deal with is that there are reasonable reasons for why you would want something like money laundering or why you would want illicit flows of capital that go into terrorist organizations, whatever. Like there are reasonable arguments to be made for why those are things the government should be able to stop. But the question is, at what cost, right? At what cost and at what effect? And I think that that's the thing that you see when you look at these types of systems is that there's plenty of money laundering and there's plenty of corruption that goes on, but the vast majority of it is in the traditional currency, is in notably the US dollar among everything else. So when you look at this, you can't just say, all right, well, something bad is happening here. You have to look at it and you have to compare it against, all right, what are we giving up by addressing this? And what change does it make in the big picture about all of these things? And I think that Jesse would agree with me in saying that the cost is too great. The advantage and the actual benefit that we gain is significantly smaller than something that actually matters. And if this was actually something that the regulators wanted to deal with, well, we saw with the release of the FinCEN papers where 
many, many suspicious activity reports filed by the banking system over the last 20 years were released, uh, that they have much of this information. And even when they have the information, nothing really happens. And the companies that are perpetrating most of the money laundering actually don't see any sort of meaningful repercussions. So I think it's a, a lot of it is about that, right? When you're looking at this sort of thing, you know, like this is a totally on, uh, on point take, I think, from Jesse. And it's one that you have to be kind of increasingly brave in this type of an environment to say, because otherwise people are going to paint you with whatever the worst possible thing is. Jen, to you. Yeah, I'm going to take it in a little bit of a different direction. I'm really happy that every time we discuss this, the article brings up the 1996 federal court case, Bernstein versus the U.S. So this case established source code as speech. And, and this is protected by the First Amendment, right? And so, so much in this industry, we talk about precedent setting. Like, oh, this is great. We're going to go to court. We're going to get a precedent set. That way we can move forward. Here we have a precedent that's been set. And it seems to have not really been thought about. And so I'm happy that it comes up every time we discuss this because I think it's really important that code is protected as free speech, as a federal court has ruled. And if we're not going to do that, there has to be a, the correct legal procedure. But Zach? Yeah, internet money really changes the calculus there, right? I don't know what the specifics of that 1996 case were, but I bet it wasn't dealing with vast sums of money sloshing around the internet, free of national borders and free of national regulation. This is a new paradigm. And I think once money entered the equation, as it related to these, these open source projects, it became a much different conversation. It certainly became a much different conversation once Bitcoin was pumping, once more people were entering the space, once sort of it became apparent that, hey, maybe this Bitcoin and crypto thing could potentially be transformative. And I think in, that, in these past 18 months, it's no accident that we've seen additional conversations, enforcement actions, proclamations from governments and others worldwide looking at the possible threat of what these things could pose to them. So I think zooming out, when we look at sort of code as free speech, it probably didn't account for some of these big thorny issues around money, which really does have a way of sort of drawing people's attention, focus and clarity to some of these issues that were probably previously otherwise a bit inane to some of these lawmakers. So it's going to be interesting to see again, whether or not that gets revisited in the age of internet native borderless money, but we'll see. Wendy. Isn't it kind of funny how laws become outdated, but we still use them as president? And I'm kind of taking a jab at the SEC when we talk about the laws from the 30s and the 40s regarding securities and regarding the Howey test. Those laws are not good for today's society because we have outgrown them with tech. These laws really need to be revamped. They need to be gone back over, combed over, and kind of include the different things that are happening in real life. Using old laws are not necessarily a good thing. I love the president that's being set, but at the same time, when tech changes or when something changes that could impact the outcome of that law, it is our lawmakers' responsibility to go back and fine-tune those and say, hey, we need to change this. This doesn't work anymore. Because I don't know what my taxpayer dollars are going to anymore. I have no idea because the people we have in power are clearly not doing their job or they're just lazy. I think there's a big temptation to continue to use existing laws that are on the books and existing precedent, because especially for an agency like the SEC, when you're creating new rules, there's a necessary public comment period. There's a necessary, you know, there's, there's the place where you have to actually explain why we're doing this rule in this way. And you have to essentially take feedback from people who are going to be impacted by it before you actually make the rule. That's not true if you're not making new rules. If all you're doing is you're saying, hey, this rule that was passed 80 years ago, 
you know, we're going to say that this applies in this way, in this way, in this way, because there's this plausible argument or this plausible argument, you know, even when most of it doesn't fit, that's still from a, like a, a process standpoint is vastly preferable because again, it allows the regulator to do what they want, which to my view is exactly why we see this sort of weird hop, skip and jump, like method of regulation that we've seen over the last number of years. I just saw some new cases filed against 2017 ICO projects the other day. I mean, like this is not a fast process and it's not a process that's designed to create clarity for us. It's a process that's designed to confuse the issue, to make it so that you get more bad actors out of it, in my opinion, because otherwise you would make very clear rules and then people who understand how to follow rules would create projects with them. But as someone who's been creating projects in the space for a long time, I've long been frustrated by that lack of clarity because it does push riskier projects into the kind of the limelight simply because they're the ones who are willing to take the risks. So, you know, I feel like this goes back to the conversation I kind of wanted to have about the Columbia thing, which is here's reality over here. And then over here, here's like this perfect world where actually we can see some utility for this. And I see very, very similar things here. In a perfect world, we would very much see new regulations being created that were incorporating, you know, people who understand what is happening with these technologies uh, in that process. And we would have rules that would be very clear, easy to follow and would also protect consumers. But in practice, we're not going to have that because it's not to the benefit of the regulators of the government for us to have that. And so we just continue on like this with my dour perspective. Moving Wendy, to, to your point, I, quickly before we move on, that the Howey test, the laws you're talking about from the 30s and 40s, I just want to tell our audience they had to do with citrus grove land parcels. And we are using that to talk about borderless digital currency. And so it is crazy. But if we look at the legal system, they've always just kind of worked on precedent setting. And so Adam, to your point, it would take a big change for, I think, lawmakers to look at this and say, we need to do something different. Because I think we just fall back and say, this is how it's always been done. So it's how we will always continue to do it, unfortunately. But let's move on to a little bit of a happier story. Despite the value of VC investments in the crypto industry falling 26% this year, Crypto investment firm CoinFund is launching a $300 million Web3 fund for Layer 1s, gaming, and NFTs. The fund is going to invest in companies showing commercial traction that belong to a sector with a large total addressable market, according to CoinFund managing partner David Hackman. So I'm kind of happy we're ending with the story since we started off with, with layoffs. I didn't get to say this in the first story, but if you find yourself being laid off, there are still companies in the space that are hiring. And there is still a lot of investment happening. I think that people shouldn't be discouraged when they see the number going down because it's very clear that people with very deep pockets see the promise of the industry and builders are still building. So if you have the solution to a problem in this space and the determination to start something, there's money out there for you. Adam, I see you nodding away. So I'm going to kick this off to you first. I mean, I think it's pretty consistent, which is, again, you're seeing players who seem to have played the situation over the last six or nine months correctly, you know, consolidating. You're seeing them pulling in more investment dollars, just as, you know, the players who didn't do quite so well, you know, or maybe in bankruptcy right now are really, they're not really viable targets to put cash into at this point. So there's clearly something significant, something disruptive happening in Web3. There's clearly something disruptive happening across the crypto sector. It makes sense to me that CoinFund would double down like this. And the thing that you get during bear markets is you get better deals, right? Because the kind of all the competition from all the hot money isn't there. Instead, you've only really, you're only competing against the people who have played it right and kept some capital for when this kind of came along. So I think it's uh, not surprising. I think it's a good sign overall. But honestly, I would have been surprised if we weren't seeing things like this. It would be a bad thing 
or are we not seeing the continued launch of these types of funds? Zach, I see you nodding. Let's go to you. Yeah, and bigger checks. I think that's notable here, right? This yeah. seems to be mostly a follow-on vehicle, right? For projects that they invested in at the seed or earlier, right. you know, they're growing. The ones that are working, they need additional capital to ramp up. And so this represents sort of the maturation of the coin fund approach. And again, likely the maturation of some of their stronger projects that they've backed at earlier rounds. So uh, yeah, that there's more money in the space is not necessarily surprising. I think we, we have sort of this cast of characters who are funding a lot of projects. I noticed that, you know, that they are interested in, in new layer ones, right? And I think it's going to be interesting to see this new layer one base layer race ramp up where there's all these new entrants and people looking to be the hot new thing. So I think there is still room for different visions and different futures that each of these blockchain projects represent. So it's going to be funny to see which ones ultimately emerge as, you know, the big, the big winners of the next cycle. Probably start seeing some of those, those early green shoots from some of these projects in the coming months. So the fact that this is, again, CoinFund ramping up and saying, hey, we have bigger checks to sign and we want to sort of fund that next sort of not quite growth stage, but almost there. I think probably Series A, I think is mentioned here. That's certainly significant as it relates to one of the more prominent VC players in the space. Now we know where to go to get our Taco Dow funded, right, guys? Taco Dow, remember? <laughs> Coin fund, would, please call us. Come on, we have let's do this great thing. ideas, solutions we'll to so it. many problems. Yes. <laughs> I would like to say that at least somebody was responsible in the bull market and they didn't like give frivolous money away. So this is good. This is positive. And kind of in closing, I do want to say I've been screaming at the top of my lungs to pay attention to Web3 metaverse NFT projects. I really think they will be the play for the next bull run. And we're already seeing this with some of the people that made good choices in the bull run. Hey, man, those LPs, those limited partners, they want in. They want in now and they want in on the next ride up. All right. We'll see how it all shakes out. Who knows? That's it for the show today. We're wearing red today. And Adam, you're still wearing quote unquote terracotta. Reddish. But I will give you the power to determine what our next color coordination day is tomorrow. Pick a color, any color. Go. Blue. Blue it is. You heard it here first. Blue tomorrow. Thursday blues. We're going to be rocking the Thursday blues. The hash where you get all the news that you can handle. There we go. And fashion news as well. And and fashion. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And so much more. All right. That's it for the show. I'm Zach Seward, Adam Levine, Wendy O, Jen Sanassi. Gang's all here. Talk to you soon. Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secure Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.